where we confess the following. What is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing <clears throat> by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. After the sermon, we will voice our Amen together by singing from Psalm 115, stanzas 1 and 6. Psalm 115, 1 and 6, after the sermon. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the third commandment we are told not to use the name of our God in vain. And boys and girls, I'm sure that at one time or another your parents have told you don't watch that movie because there's too much swearing in it. Or don't watch that show, there's too much swearing in it. And to a large degree, our understanding of the third commandment is, is sort of limited to that, swearing and the inappropriate use of God's name. We are rightly bothered when people use God's name needlessly and carelessly because it's usually done in anger or to emphasize a statement. But just as with the other commandments, this commandment has much broader implications. So I've summarized the sermon with the following theme and points. We are to reverence the name of God. And we'll consider four things. The significance of God's name, the abuse of God's name, the fulfillment of God's name in Christ, or how Christ fulfills God's name and finally, the proper use of God's name. The name of God is, of course, much more than a combination of sounds based on consonants and vowels. After all, God's name sounds different in Russian or in Chinese than it does in English. And so when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's not emphasizing a certain group of letters. Those letters don't carry some kind of mystical power. But in Scripture, the mention of God's name is a way of speaking of God's presence in his, and how God reveals himself. And so using his name is a serious thing, not because of how it sounds, but because of who it is about, because God is holy. His name reveals his character. And so in that sense, it's impossible to separate God's name from his person and from his identity and from his works. And that's how it is with our names, too. When you hear somebody's name, you right away think of who that person is, and you think of their reputation and their character. Our reputation and character are wrapped up in our name, and so it is with God. His name is a reflection of his being. He is the only self-existent and self-sufficient being in the universe. He is the only one who has life in and of himself. 
And that's the essential meaning of his covenantal name by which he reveals himself to his people, the name that we usually pronounce as Yahweh, the Lord in all capital letters in your English Bible. It means I am who I am, or simply I am, or simply the one who is. When the Lord revealed that name to Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses, my name is I am. And this same Lord led his people Israel through the wilderness. And he he led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this goes to show that this God is not distant or unknowable, but he is personal and he is nearby and he reveals himself to his people. He reveals his character to his people. He speaks to them and he allows us to speak to him. But there is more. When God met Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. The God who met Moses at the burning bush is a holy God. And he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he is a God who keeps his promises. He had told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years And then he would take them, deliver them from Egypt, and bring them to the promised land. And God said to Moses, if the people of Israel ask who sent you, then you can tell them the God of Abraham sent me, the God who is about to keep his promise. God was going to uphold his reputation. He does uphold his reputation as a God who keeps his word the God who protects his covenant people, who maintains the relationship that he makes with his children, who maintains his covenant, his promises. He is a holy God. His name remains holy, and his reputation is holy. And that's one of the reasons why our confession speaks of the holy name of God. God's name and reputation and character are pure, and he keeps it pure. And he has chosen to reveal himself in that manner. And his revelation proves it. His works prove his holiness and his name and his character. His reputation is tied up in his works. He revealed himself in such a way that both Israel and the surrounding nations were fully aware of who he is. Yahweh as the God who listened to his people. He heard them crying out and he rescued them from slavery. And he saves their people, saves his people from their bondage to sin. So he is faithful, he is trustworthy, he keeps his promises. He is the God who comes down to his people in love and mercy, in grace. He acts on their behalf. Other gods, gods that people make up, pagan gods, whatever, they are deaf and dumb and powerless. But Yahweh is the God of action. He is the God who wishes to be known by his children too. That's how he revealed himself, for example, at Mount Sinai. He gave his law to his people, the ten words of his covenant, and he reminded them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So every time we hear those words, I am the Lord your God, we're reminded of who he is, that he is the God who acts, the God who saves, the God who keeps his word, 
the God who is not distant, but the God who wants to have a relationship with his people, who wants to be close to his people. One of the most wonderful things that we learn from Scripture is that God wants to place his name upon us. We often read in Scripture the phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord. That's a phrase that means to worship the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord is to worship him. But at the same time, when we read about the instructions of worship, we read that the priests were commanded to place the name of God on his people by blessing them in the name of the Lord. So God's name then is also synonymous with blessing and with salvation. The Apostle Peter in his Pentecost sermon said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Apostle Paul said the same thing, for example, to the Philippian jailer. And in Romans 10, he says, are you a Jew? Then call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Are you a Gentile? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So how then can anyone who knows this God think that he is a God who is far away? The God of our salvation is not a cold God, not a distant God, but a loving God. He knows his children and he he establishes a relationship with them. So all of this then helps us to see the significance of God's name. His name is his self-revelation to us. Because in his name, he shows himself for who he is. The faithful one. The Lord. The one who does not change. And his love and mercy are especially revealed in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So is it any wonder then that he commands us to hold his name high? And is it any wonder then that we confess that no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the abuse of his name, the blaspheming of his name? And that brings us to the second point, the abuse of God's name. A very literal translation of the third commandment would go like this, you shall not lift up the name of God in an empty manner or for an empty purpose. That's what the verb The word vain means, it means empty. So don't hold God's name up for an empty purpose. The idea is that you may not use God's name casually, but only as he has intended it. It is not to be used for our purpose, but only in a way that God has commanded in his word. And the Catechism speaks here of cursing, and that is more than just using profanity or or foul language, although the two usually go hand in hand. Cursing involves the frivolous use of God's name as a, as a swear word, as a, as a measure to add some, some punch to an argument. Many people aren't even aware of what they are doing when they, when they use God's name in that way. But it doesn't make that sin any less serious, because that is a sin that offends God. And he says that he will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Another way of abusing God's name is to think that it has magical powers. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 24, we read about an Egyptian man who had an argument and a fight with an Israelite man. And during that fight, the Egyptian cursed 
the God of Israel. He cursed the God of that Israelite man. And the text says he pierced the name of God. And by, by doing that, by cursing the name of, of his opponent or the God of his opponent, he thought that he could somehow gain an advantage over his opponent. He thought that cursing God would give him extra power. But this young man experienced the ultimate penalty for his sin and he was stoned to death. But there are other ways in which we abuse God's name. We can also do it in a pious way. I'm sure you've heard of preachers, perhaps TV preacher personalities who try to raise money in the name of the Lord. They claim that I heard one man claim, God told me that I need a Learjet for the Lord. And so he made the audience feel guilty if they didn't give, them, give him enough money to raise money for, for a Learjet. That too is a, a horrible offense to God. To use God's name in a pious, seemingly pious way. At the same time, I'm sure you are aware that God's people can also cause others to blaspheme the name of God. King David, for example, was guilty of that sin when he murdered Uriah and he stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. According to Nathan the prophet, this action made the enemies of the Lord heap contempt on the name of God. That is why God was so angry with David. And in the New Testament, we are warned not to live in a way that brings discredit to the name of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus that, that Christians are to work honestly in their daily occupation so that the name of God and Jesus Christ will not be blasphemed. We very easily run the risk of disparaging God's name and of discrediting God's name when we destroy our own reputation in the community around us. We are called to be image bearers of God and of Jesus Christ. And the way that we bear the image of God also impacts the reputation of God before our neighbor. When Christians act in a way that is not in agreement with the image of God, then then God's name is being used in an empty manner. His name becomes insignificant because you're acting as if God doesn't matter. And when we act that way, then there's two things that happen. Your neighbor gets the wrong view of God, and your neighbor also can conclude that it's no use to serve God because it doesn't seem to matter anyway. So it's good to ask ourselves, what is our reputation? What is your reputation? Are you known as a Christian at work? And in the community? And do you defend God's honor and reputation? Do you uphold his name by how you live, how you act, how you treat your employer, how you treat your employees, how you treat your co-workers? I'll mention one more example. We can also risk the blaspheming the name, blaspheming the name of God when we simply take God's grace for granted. When we go through the motions of speaking and singing perhaps about the great works of God that he has done for us in Christ, but in the meantime, our hearts are lukewarm at best. We so easily let ourselves get used to being Christians, so to speak. 
We get used to our worship. Sometimes we get a little bored by it all. After all, we've heard the same thing before, haven't we? During Bible reading, during preaching, in the catechism classes. Let's be honest with ourselves. We sometimes get a little bored with it all. Maybe sometimes we're glad when the minister is finished reading the Ten Commandments. Or he says, Amen, at the end of the sermon. When we do that, we also are not holding God's name high. We are using it in an empty manner. Because think about it, if, if hearing what God has done for you and what Christ has done for you, if that becomes boring, what is that? Then we need to repent from such an attitude. We come to our third point, how Christ fulfills God's name. I mentioned earlier the name of Yahweh includes that God is the redeemer of his people. And in Jesus Christ, he has made his name more fully known. Christ is the greatest and the most wonderful revelation of the name of God. He says of himself, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And elsewhere, I and the Father are one. So in Jesus Christ, God has proven more fully that he wishes to be close to his people, that he is the God of salvation. In the person of Jesus Christ, God's love and faithfulness have been fully revealed. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Acts chapter 4. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him that name that is above every name, Philippians chapter 2. And that's quite astonishing, isn't it? Jesus lived on earth. He shared our life as a human being, and yet he is one with Yahweh. In the book of Revelation, he reveals himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all of this is also contained in the name of the one who says, I am. And so the name of Jesus Christ is also holy and wonderful and pure. He also is faithful and trustworthy. He also keeps his word. He, is, he fulfills his promises. He fulfills God's promises to his people. And of course, we could never claim that he is not close to us. He is not a God who is far away. He came and lived among us. He is not distant or cold. And so we see that the triune God, the God who is, is a loving God who reveals himself as our Father in Jesus Christ. And so this is also the way in which Christ transforms the third commandment. He more fully reveals to us the name of God. Of course, in the Old Testament, God is also revealed as a father. We read that in Isaiah 63. God's Old Testament people understood that he, he was their father. And there are other glimpses of God as father in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 32. Moses says, Is God not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? So we have this, this foreshadowing language in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we have even more. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ, Jesus' relationship to his Father. He prays to the Father as the Son. 
He knows the Father because he's sent by the Father. And he speaks his Father's words and he does his Father's deeds and his Father's work. When Jesus prays, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then he goes on to claim, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what does this mean? It means that the Son of God has opened the door of heaven to make the third commandment new for us. He gives us the right to use the term Father. He gives us the right to call upon God in that way. He teaches us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. And we may call him our Father, the one who resides in glory, the one whom we heard about this morning, the God who created everything. And then we may pray too, hallowed be your name. And then by the power of him who works in us both to will and to do, we can begin to praise and reverence his holy name. And that brings us to the last point, the proper use of God's name. As we discover what the third commandment means, we also begin to understand that not swearing and not using foul language, that's not enough. Positively, we are to name the name of God and confess his holiness. We might wonder, well, it's not possible to make God's name more holy than it is already. He is already three times holy. He is beyond holy, you could say. And God, we understand from Scripture, ultimately makes his own name holy. He does that by revealing himself and by revealing what he does. But what is so absolutely marvelous, congregation, is that this God gives us his name. We bear the name of Christ, we are called Christians, little Christs, Christ followers. But even more than that, in our baptism, which is our name-giving ceremony, you could say, we receive the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We receive the triune name of our God. And so we share in his holiness and glory, and we may claim it too. And as we carry the name of our Father, we also carry the name of his Son, And we come to the Father in the name of the Son who also promises to pray for us. So it is in and through Jesus Christ that we belong to the Father and through him that we hallow and reverence the name of God. From the moment that Peter began to preach in the name of Christ at Pentecost, Christians have been calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They have bowed their knee to him Their tongues confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And congregation, we do the same. We continue to do that. And we continue to call sinners to repentance and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so it would be correct to say that the honoring of God's name is crucial to our own well-being because God has bound himself to us. And we have... The evidence in that, because our name is bound up in his name. When you were baptized, 
God's name and your name were mentioned together in one sentence. Because the minister says, I baptize you, so and so, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by giving his name to us at our baptism, he binds himself to us. And he gives us eternal life. Just as he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, so he is also our God. And that's why when we hold God's name high, when we reverence his name, that is also something that protects our own identity because our identity is bound up in his identity. And so we have every reason to obey this commandment, to honor the name of God. Every reason to get rid of practices that dishonor his name. And every reason to put on attitudes of the heart. Attitudes that bring about honor to God's name. We are to keep our hearts free from idols. We are never to honor anything else in our life other than God for the blessings that he has given us. And we are to let the Spirit of Christ, which is the light of the world, we are to let that light shine in and through us. Because as children of our Father in heaven, we're called to show what he is like. That's what it means to carry his name. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's our calling. That's a high calling, isn't it? We might ask ourselves, are we able to do that? Can we use the name of Yahweh with fear and reverence? Well, certainly not in our own strength, brothers and sisters, but only in the strength of the one who calls us to a new obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ has also sent out his spirit. He has poured his his spirit on his church, and his spirit dwells in our hearts and in our lives. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to speak of God in a way that is pleasing to him. And we can begin to confess and defend his name in a way that's pleasing to him. At home, in our worship services, at work, on the playground, and in our neighborhood. In the power of the Holy Spirit, our songs and our prayers become praises to God and become acceptable to God because he enables us and he perfects our works. He is God's gift to us to the praise of his glory. Amen.